It's sabotage. Um, God's been speaking very clearly about restoration. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, what we find is a bunch of disciples who hadn't yet got to the depths that Peter finally got to. And when Jesus died, knowing that they betrayed him and run away, they hadn't got quite to those depths, but were already very troubled. In chapter 13, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago when Russell Rook was speaking from the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, uh, in chapter 13, it goes on to get more and more troubling. First of all, Jesus explains that one of this inner circle is going to betray him, which is, what Ju- which is what Judas went on to do. Later, in chapter 13, then in verse 33, the story starts to get worse and more troubling for the disciples. As Jesus says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I... Uh, people sometimes ask whether... People like me work on any day other than Sunday. <laughs> Obviously, I don't know. And, um, and I heard a great answer to that recently, which is, would you like to do the most stressful, think of the most stressful part of your job, the thing that most stresses you out in the whole week, and then imagine doing it in front of a few hundred people uh, every week. And uh, anyway, that was what was going on there. <laughs> Incompetence exposed. Um, thank you. In verse 33, Jesus says, my children, this is in chapter 13, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I will now tell you where I'm going, you can't come. I'm off and, you know, things are over between us. I'm going to be separate from you. And then when Peter asks about this and says, Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you, verse 37, just to make sure that it's all very clear that this separation is going to take place. And predicting the future, Jesus answered, will you really? Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth before the cock crows, you'll disown me three times. That's the background coming into chapter 14. So when Jesus says right at the beginning of the chapter, do not let your hearts be troubled. He is speaking to a troubled bunch of people. This isn't just an abstract. You know, if at some point in the future you happen to have a bit of bother, do remember at that point that I'm what I'm telling you. Now, he's speaking to a bunch of guys who are really, really distressed. That's the context that we have of Jesus speaking to troubled hearts. And now, I don't know whether the prophetic stuff has come out partly because people have been reading this passage in anticipation of this morning, but it certainly fits. Because God's been speaking about restoration, about uh, the grave clothes coming off and new life. He's been speaking about taking the lid off things and uh, ostriches, their heads in the sand, and in different ways, I trust, encouraging faith in us, that he is going to heal us, that he is going to strengthen us, restore us, and do us good. This chapter is spoken to people 
who were troubled. And we're going to go through it a few verses at a time as far as verse 14. In, verse, in verses 1 to 3 then, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I'd have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. It's a slightly complicated language as Jesus takes what's actually the huge picture of human history and squeezes it into just a couple of sentences. Because what he's told them about his going away is what's just about to happen. That's what's worrying them, that he will go away. And the first thing he does to ease their troubled minds is to tell them the bigger picture that is going to unfold. He helps them see that there is much more than just the moment that they're living in. You know, when we face trouble, when we're churned up inside, when we look clearly at the fact that we have lost things that matter to us, when we see hopes remaining unfulfilled and they're clearly in our view, we don't really want to look up and see the big picture. We get absorbed. We even get depressed. In depression, we come to a place where actually all we can see is what's wrong. All we can feel is the loss. And there's no vision of the rest of reality. But actually, there's quite a lot of stuff in the world that's good. But sometimes when we're troubled, we talk about somebody having their head down. And sometimes trouble does that to us. And understandably, the disciples were focused on this thing that Jesus had just said to them about his imminent departure. The first thing that he does is call them up to see the big picture. And for some of us this morning, with whatever troubles we have, God wants to lift our eyes too to see the same big picture. Jesus says, look, I'm not just, I'm not just going away That's not the whole story. There's a reason why I'm going away. I'm going away to the Father to prepare a place there. But you know what? Once it's sorted, I'm coming back to get you. And we together are going to go to the place that I have prepared. That is to be with the Father forever. It's what Jesus, what Jesus does is explained in 1 Thessalonians verse uh, chapter 4 verses 15 and following it says according to the Lord's own word we tell you that we who are still alive who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Jesus spoke these words of encouragement to his disciples. He says, yes, there's a season of separation. I am going away. Actually, in the next few weeks, as we go through the book of John, whereas there's a whole other strand, which is that Jesus isn't just going away and coming back later, but in the meantime, sending the Spirit. And we'll get to that. But right here and now, what Jesus says is, I'm going away, but I will come back. It's going to meet us in the air. You know, do you ever have, make that kind of Christian joke where if someone, you can't find someone, you say, oh, has the rapture happened? And you wonder whether you've been left behind. It's a good title for a book, that, isn't it? Left behind. Anyway, some of you are getting that joke. It was a Christian subculture joke. I do apologize. Some of you have no idea about the left behind books. Anyway. Where am I? Oh, Jesus is coming back. And I was going to say something about that. It is going to be good. Any, any, any more ideas about what? I... It's definitely something. Oh, the rapture. Thank you. That's where I was. Anyway, I was going to say, in 1 Thessalonians 4 gives us a real clue. If, you're, if you can't find someone and you're wondering whether the rapture's happened, the key thing is to see whether there are resurrected people floating around in the sky. Because they get, that happens first. And the dead outnumber the living many times over, so bound to spot a few. If you're ever worried, look for, look for corpses in the sky. That's the answer. So put that anxiety to rest. So when Jesus, I mean, Jesus went to be with the Father 2,000 years ago. He went from heaven to earth and then from earth back to heaven at the ascension. It's 2,000 years ago. It's a long time to plump pillows, isn't it? Um, he's gone to prepare a room for us. I mean, I understand there's a lot of people, a lot of fires to lay, a lot of fur rugs, Eileen, to get sorted, candles to light. But, but really, does, I mean, what does it mean that Jesus is going to prepare a room? I don't know if you ever wondered, what, what's that all about then? What, I mean, he made the whole earth. It surely isn't going to take him 2,000 years to get the hospitality in order for when all the dead people get resurrected and we meet him in the air. Actually, Jesus doesn't really focus on that. What he focuses on is the fact that he is making a way for us to come to heaven. He has gone ahead of us to prepare the way that we can then follow. Because before Jesus went through the process of the cross and resurrection and ascension. Before that happened, that was the doormat of heaven for us. We didn't belong. We couldn't come in. Our sin separated us from God, and however nice the fires and the candles and whatever else were, we weren't allowed in. We weren't welcome in heaven. 
But because of what Jesus has done in his going to the Father, the things that he achieved on the way from this moment in John 14 to the Father, his death, his resurrection and his ascension, the doormats changed. And we're now welcome into heaven. Jesus' answer to the disciples in their trouble wasn't, first of all, a promise that he'd make everything fine now. It was that what he was going to do would result in eternal life for them, and that the end of the story would be that all is well. And uh, sometimes when you're in a season of depression... The idea of everything just being fine at some point in the future doesn't quite, doesn't quite land. I think some of the prophetic words that we've had this morning have been about saying, look, we know it's not that the truth doesn't just land in the moment necessarily, but God does want to take each one of us through a process to the point where it does land and it does make sense because Jesus says this stuff in the face of trouble, in the face of anxiety and panic and loss, and it's meaningful however hard life has become, however self-absorbed in our pain we may have found ourselves, these words from Jesus still speak to us. And before we finish this morning, we need to take a little bit of time to allow that to happen, to invite God, say, Lord, would you let me see that big picture? Even if I can't see it, if it, I can see it kind of intellectually, but it just isn't making any impact on me. We need to pray and ask that the truth of the word of God would do its work and lift you as it should. The second thing that Jesus goes on to talk about is more about the way that he is making to be with the Father. So he says in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas, always one to be straight to the point, said to him, no we don't. Lord, we don't know where you're going. So, how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, Jesus doesn't expand too much on what heaven's like and talks about the way to get there. Now, Thomas's point is that if we don't know the destination, how on earth can we get there? And he's asking for inf- more information, please, about the destination. More information, please, about this future that sounds great, but is still a little bit vague in all that Jesus has said. And uh, when we want to get somewhere, we do normally start out with a sense of the place that we're trying to get to. Whether it's your a sat-nav into which you need to put the postcode or the address of your destination for it to tell you which way to go, or whether you're still on a previous and more human technology of winding down the window and asking, you, the question you ask is, how do I get to the place that I'm going? Jesus rather says, no, you don't, you don't know where you're going, 
But you, you do know the way to get there because the way to get there is following me. See, the thing that you have been doing for years now, following me, I called you to follow me and I'd make you fishers of men and you've been following me around this country and that whole thing of following me and doing what I say, that is just going to carry on exactly the same. The way to get to that future glory is simply to carry on following me as you have always done. So I have this picture here, just supposed to be a picture of, you know, I'm thinking of films where someone jumps into a taxi and says, follow that car. Because <laughs> that's, that's what it's like. Uh, when we are trying to get somewhere, one option is to have the sat-nav or ask people as you go. Another option is just to follow someone who knows. And uh, nowadays, of course, things have got a bit complicated. I don't know if you're like me. Nowadays, you know, 10 years ago, if someone said, follow me to where I'm going, I would just follow them. Now, I'll make sure I've got their mobile number before we start moving in case I lose them. And we can, we can reconnect. You know, technology changes these things a little bit. But the point of all of that, even with the mobile phone, is we need to stay in contact. If we break contact then we could lose our way. But as long as we stay in touch, as long as I can see the one that I'm following who knows the way to go, then it's going to be okay. When we're feeling beaten up and Jesus comes and says, follow me. Sometimes (laughs) we don't respond too well. In those moments of feeling beaten up and troubled, often the times where we say, stuff that. You know, I've been following you, and look where we got to. I really am not motivated to carry on following you. If we could please just stay here, Lord, until you've sorted it out. When you're treating me better, we'll talk again about this following thing, okay? Jesus says, keep on following me. The way is to keep on following me. Of course, this verse where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is a very, very important verse. It's a verse that's often quoted for a purpose quite alien to the original conversation, but very relevant today in a multi-faith society. Israel wasn't a multi-faith society. Jesus didn't speak these words to the disciples for that purpose. But it does have a meaning for us today in a world where there are... There have always been many religions, but we are more aware of that now than probably at any other point in human history. Other religions are there. They're here on our doorstep. They're... We are connected with the world through technology and all the rest of it. So we know that there are many, many religions. And this story is told, isn't it? I'm sure that most of us will have heard. It's actually a Hindu story, originally written in Sanskrit, in the Hindu scriptures, of actually not just three, but six blind men coming across an elephant and each trying to work out what they'd found. 
And the blind man who'd got hold of the tail said, I know what it is. It's a rope. And the one who got hold of a leg said, no, it's a tree. Someone who was pushing against the wall of the elephant, side of the elephant, thought it was a wall. Someone who'd got, the blind man who'd got hold of the ear thought it was a fan. The one who got hold of the trunk thought he had a snake. They'd found a snake. And the one who'd got hold of a tusk thought he'd found a spear. And the moral of the story within Hinduism is that really all religions, however different their descriptions, are dealing with the same reality. Which is to say that all religions lead equally to God. And that would be the most common view, possibly not derived directly in people's minds from the Hindu scriptures. But that sentiment would be there. Uh, Often as not, just because there's just so much information and so many religions, and who on earth has got the time to process all of them and work out the rights and wrongs of it all? So a lot of people will relax simply into saying, well, you know what, people use different words, but all religions religions lead to God. I mean, all those people are trying quite hard, aren't they, after all, to do the right thing. Uh, There's another way of reading this Hindu story which is to say that actually they were just all wrong. There wasn't any of those things. They, I mean, if they were all equally right, they were all equally wrong, and they were all totally wrong. It's not a very helpful story. If the story said that these blind men had all come across an elephant, and one of them concluded that it was a mammoth, because he got a bit of a hairy bit of it, and another one concluded that it was uh, a hippo, and another concluded that it was a rhino. If, they, if they'd all got more or less the right thing, you'd have some confidence in saying, well, slightly different ways of looking at it, but basically the same reality. That's not what the story says. What this picture suggests is that every religion has not got it approximately right, but badly wrong. Each religion claims to lead us to the mountaintop of encounter with the ultimate spiritual reality. But if that's true, given how contradictory different religions are, we need to be more honest, we would need to be more honest, and say that if all religions are equal, then none of them gets beyond the small foothills of spiritual reality, given how different they all are from each other. Having said that, Alongside real differences, we need to be aware that there is a huge amount in common across different religions. Sometimes we take side swipes, if we're not careful, at other religions and write the whole thing off as wrong or even demonic. It's not as simple as that. We have a huge amount in common. It is true that all religions prohibit murder, assault, lying, and breaking your word. All religions place some limit on sexual activity. Almost all hold to the golden rule, do to others what you would have them do to you. None of those things sound demonic to me. There's a huge amount that we have in common across different religions, and we need to be honest and open about that reality. One of the things that I do is... 
uh, participate in the Oxford Council of Faiths as a representative, really, of evangelical Christians in the city. And the conversations that go on there are all about this, about how much we have in common, really. And the truth is that there's a lot. I can sit and listen, as I have done, to a Muslim leader talk about what needs to be done for the spiritual benefit of disaffected young people and think 80-90% of that is spot on, and for him it's all been inspired by Islam. Sorry if that's probably not what you expected me to say this morning. But it's true. At the same time, the differences that exist are real. Just as much as we have a huge amount in common, there's a huge amount that is different. Buddhists do not believe, ultimately, in a difference between good and evil. That's a fairly big deal. Uh, Buddhists also believe that heresies can be really helpful for guiding people towards the truth. Jews believe that they alone have a special relationship with God. Hindus, who hold to a doctrine of reincarnation in which those who've lived a good life get to be reincarnated higher up the social tree, don't have a lot of time for social mobility and talking about bettering the cause of the poor. Because if you're poor, you deserve it. And if you're rich, you've deserved it too in a previous life. These are real and substantial differences, and it will not do for us to just brush them to one side. The frustration that I feel in some of the encounters I have with people from other religions is that there's such a strong desire to avoid conflict that sometimes the discussion is only about what we have in common. It's good to talk about what we have in common because we can build a society together for the common good that way. But actually, if we don't also talk about what is different, then it's shallow. And the relationships that we have with other people will not be authentic. We want to enter into conversation with people where we recognize what we have in common and what differs. And there's this strange idea that goes around that all of the faiths have loads of stuff in common. We're basically similar faith communities. And then there are secularists who are somehow different and standing outside of that. Another hat that I wear is as a member of the chaplaincy council at Brooks University. And in a conversation that we had there, I got into a little bit of hot water, which I do sometimes, because we're talking about whether the chaplaincy should move from being a Christian ecumenical chaplaincy to more of a multi-faith chaplaincy. And I found myself saying uh, that I have a problem with that because I think that I have at least as much in common with Richard Dawkins as I do with the average Buddhist. Does that make sense? I mean, you know, I believe in all kinds of things that Richard Dawkins believes. He believes that people should read the King James Bible. I think that's true and good, yes. Uh, He believes in democracy. I think, well, yes, God's made all people in his image and everybody has dignity before God, 
Well, I agree. Actually, you got that from the Bible, mate. There we go. Um, To somehow lump everyone who has any kind of faith together as one group and those who have no faith as a different group makes no sense at all. It's rather truer to say, we have, we have, as Christians, we have some things in common with Muslims. It's partly because some of the things in Islam borrow from Christianity. We have some things in common with Jews, partly because the borrowing came the other way round. Uh, we have some things in common, although rather less, still with Hindus and Buddhists and Sikhs. And do you know what? We even have things in common with pagans. And we have things in common with atheists. We have a huge swathe of differences with all of those different groups as well. It's just complicated. And what we need to do is to enter into conversation with people and find out the reality of it so that we don't caricature people. Into all of that come these words. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. India is meant to be a country where kind of any direction goes and you can follow any different route that you will and it will be all right. Most of the time, the driving on the roads follows that principle as well. But I have never seen a sign like this one in England this is a, I came across this sign in the underground car park of a shopping mall in Delhi. I thought it was very helpful. <laughs> it is helpful from time to time for us not just to point the right way, but to say, that is the wrong way. It's not going to help you. You know, And in this context of what Jesus says, you're not going to get to the Father that way. It's the wrong way. You're going to get to the Father by following Jesus. I need to move on. Jesus says, somewhere back here, keep following me. In trouble, keep following me. Because he is the way. Uh, We also need to believe, when we're in trouble, that actually we really do see God in Jesus. Because another thing that happens when we're under the cosh is we start to doubt that we know God really. We start to want, well, I thought God was good, you know, but here here I am. So, is God good? If, If God is truly good and powerful... Why did that child die? Why did this illness come upon me? Whatever it may be. It does cause us to question whether we really, truly know God. And I know some people will come to worship Sunday by Sunday, and we're saying, God's brilliant, God's great. And actually, what's kicking off in you as we do that is going, you're going, really? I mean, I could, I could sing the words with my lips, but my heart is far from them. Because I've seen a lot of stuff, and I'm not sure God's quite as good as we're singing about. And so what Jesus says in the next few verses helps us. He says, if you really knew me, 
you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own, rather it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus is very clear that when we look at him and see what he's like, we have seen what God is like. I said a few weeks ago, talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, that the way it works with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is that once you've seen one of them, you've seen them all, because they are essentially the same. Just since we're we're playing a little bit with other religions this morning. Uh, This is an Eastern religious symbol, which is taken to mean that the good and evil in the world are inextricably bound up one with another and in each other, and therefore it's a picture used in that context of there being ultimately no real difference between good and evil, or rather, in as much as we see a distinction that good and evil so interpenetrate each other that we just need to stop thinking of them as separate things. If we could step aside from that for a minute, realize that something like this is actually a helpful picture of what the Father and the Son are like. It's the same, it's just, it's just, it's not got any demonic power or anything, it's just geometry in a picture and some of us like graphs. And the Father and the Son are in one another, actually remaining distinct, but so connected to each other that they can be said to be mutually in one another. Not just that the Father is in the Son or that the Son is in the Father, but both. And actually, because there's the Holy Spirit, there's a reason why we don't use this symbol Because if we were going to include the Holy Spirit as well, it would have to look like that. (laughs) It's just all a bit complicated. Which is why, actually, we use one like that. Oh, good, it looks Christian now. Brilliant. (laughs) Whew! Uh, Because that is a bit complicated. And that, that feels good. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God in three persons. And so if we have any doubt about what God is like, then we simply need to look afresh at Jesus and know that in that we see what he is like. If we are in a bit of a pickle and wondering whether God is really as good or as powerful as we once thought him to be, Please, 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 let's read the Gospels again and remind ourselves what Jesus is like. Because that's the point of clarity. We can think ourselves into all kinds of different weird things. If we sit and speculate and try and work it out, we'll come up with all kinds of nonsense. 
But if we read the Gospels and focus on what is clear in him, it will lift us out of our troubles. Last thing, then, uh, is Jesus goes on to say, keep on asking in my name. He says, back end of verse 11, believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Wow. There's some pretty big promises there, aren't there? Doing greater things than Jesus and anything we ask in his name, we get. Which raises a few questions. Firstly, what are those greater things then? Jesus gets to feed 5,000, we get to feed 6,000 or even more. Or Jesus raises someone who's been dead for a few days, we get to raise them when they've been dead a week. I don't think that's really the focus of what Jesus is saying. Because of this, he says, you will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And that was what Jesus said earlier in the chapter. I'm going to the Father to prepare a place for you. I'm going to the Father and making a way for you to get to be with the Father. And so this is tied up. These greater things are tied up with what Jesus achieved in his death and resurrection and ascension. That what Jesus did in his ministry before that first Easter was great, but once he had died, achieved salvation for humanity, returned to the Father and sent the Spirit, who said we'll get to in the next few weeks, then Jesus' ministry, or God's ministry in the earth, expanded massively to much, much greater things. Within a very short time, after the Holy Spirit was sent, instead of seeing a few people becoming Jesus' disciples and crowds gathering, but then the crowds being unsure and going away, there on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 repent and believe and commit themselves to the way of Jesus. In the whole of the Gospels, there's just one or two people who aren't Jews who get a bit of a blessing. But the greater thing that happens in the wake of Jesus going to the Father is that the gospel starts to go out to all the nations. So it's not just about more dramatic miracles. It's about participating. We get to participate in this growing, expanding kingdom that Jesus began. The other question that is worth asking is, what does it mean to ask for something in Jesus' name. Can we ask to win the lottery in Jesus' name? I think, no, probably not. You you could. (laughs) Could we ask for a long-awaited spouse in Jesus' name? Does that work? Could we ask for a friend with cancer to be healed? 
in Jesus' name. What does it mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is just that if you add those three words to the end of a prayer, it gives it magical power. I prayed for you to be healed of your cancer, but I forgot to say in Jesus' name. So let's just go back and do that again. In Jesus' name. It's not an incantation. It's not a biblical spell that we can cast. It's not about that. But it's a bit like this placard when people were opposed to the war in Iraq and said, not, not in my name, by which was meant... When you do this thing, don't think I am in this with you at all, because I'm not. Not in my name. And when we pray in Jesus' name, what we're doing is praying according to his will. In 1 John 5 and verse 14, it's spelled out very clearly. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That's a pretty big caveat on the promise, isn't it? What it requires us to do is to grow in our understanding of what God's will is. Except, of course, we've all had the experience of praying for things that we were sure must be God's will, and they haven't happened Sometimes the answer to that is to do with persisting in prayer. There's the story of the widow and the judge in Luke's gospel, where the widow keeps coming and asking until she gets what she is asking for. Actually, two weeks ago, when Russell Rook was here, uh, the sevens to elevens were looking at that parable. And afterwards, Russell asked his boy, who'd come for the morning, what he'd learned in Sunday school. He said, we had this really good story about the weirdo and the judge. (laughs) Which was quite cool. And sometimes it is about persisting in prayer. But sometimes the moment passes and there's no point in persisting anymore because someone has died. Or in whatever other way the moment has passed and the prayer is left unanswered. And we're left asking, so what is God's will? I thought I knew. And it seems that I don't. And it takes us back into some of those other questions I've mentioned this morning. Do we really know what God's like? Do we really know where he's taking us? And we're left with a choice, really. Uh, Not unlike that, that appears earlier in John's Gospel, where Jesus speaks difficult words to his disciples. He says in John chapter 6, eat me, eat my flesh. That's what you need to do disciples, the crowds were confused and most left. But a few stayed and said, well, here we are. Jesus said, so you're not going then? And they said, well, how how could we? I mean, where else can we go? You've got the words of eternal life. Now, even if we don't understand half of them, I'm adding in now. 
even if we don't understand half of them, even if they leave us confused, we, we know that you're the one with the words of eternal life. So we've got nowhere else to go. We end up back with Jesus at the cross. And these words at the end of this, this passage resonate with what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where he teaches the disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. We come back to that place. Jesus goes on to say, Don't worry. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, the things you need, will be given to you as well. So what we need is a fresh understanding, a fresh revelation of what God our Father is like. The troubles that we face cause us to doubt, to doubt that we know him, or if we think that we do know him, to doubt that he's good. And even if we think he's good, to doubt that it's worth following him. Jesus speaks to his disciples in trouble and says, stick with it. Keep asking. And keep on believing that you really do know what God's like. Keep on following me. And it's going to work out all right in the end. And so I suppose this morning is a time of choice. Because to these disciples in trouble, Jesus does not just say, just sit down, fellas, don't worry, I'm going to sort it all out. I'll have the world redeemed in a few days' time and I'll, you know, just chill. That's not what he says to them. What he does is lay before them a number of choices. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Keep on asking. And so I'm going to put a few questions up here and invite us to take a few minutes to reflect on them. So time for honesty this morning. Do I even want to look at the big picture? Would I rather carry on obsessing with what's negative? Do I really want to follow Jesus? If I'm honest, maybe I don't, even though I know I should. Do I feel that I know God, or has my clarity in that been lost? And do I even want to pray the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a time for honesty, but see that there's no point looking at these things and going away without being honest with God. It's silly, isn't it? God knows how, God knows how we answer all these questions anyway. Uh, we, might have to even, we, we might have to think for a few minutes to figure out what we think about these questions, but God already knows what we think. So there's no need to be afraid of bringing it to mind in case he'd get annoyed with us. Or the rational thing to do is to be honest in prayer with him. I mean, it's perfectly fine for us to say, God, I don't want to know about your glorious big picture because I'm bothered by this problem. 
that's where I'm at, that's how it is, deal with it. It's okay to pray that way. It's okay to say, God, I, you know, I once committed to following you, but I'm fed up with it. it. Turns out to be rubbish. It's okay to pray in those terms. It's okay to tell God that he feels distant and we don't, you don't know who he is anymore. If you don't even want to pray, it's still okay to come before God and say, I don't even want to be here. Even in that, there can be a growing openness. There's a word this morning about taking the lid off. And the grave clothes falling away. So I'm going to pray and leave quiet for a few minutes to reflect on these things. Father God, thank you that you sent Jesus to show us what you're really like. Without you, we would be lost, utterly confused. But in you, we find salvation. And uh, I want to pray especially for those who've come here this morning, really troubled and in need. It's the focus of this morning. Lord, we pray that you would come now by your Holy Spirit. Just help them to take the lid off things.